we are in the middle of, uh, at the very end of a series on the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at Mark over the past month and hopefully what uh, you've gotten from the reading Mark and, and, and resting in it and, and sort of allowing the scripture to wash over you is that when Mark writes, he's not just randomly telling stories or teachings of Christ. He's, he's not just, here's my journal entry of all the things and the memories that I can remember about Jesus Instead, what Mark is doing is extremely intentional. He's, he's being extremely purposeful with each word that he chooses, with every order of the story that he uses. Mark is a genius storyteller. And he sort of explains the purpose of all of his writing in the very beginning. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, Mark's whole purpose in writing this gospel is so that we might be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might be convicted that Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah that the Israelite people had been waiting for for generations and generations and generations to come and restore the broken city, to come and restore broken people, to bring a new kingdom here on earth. And Mark is declaring like, hey, Jesus, is that one. Jesus is the Messiah. Now this is a huge claim. And this is why Mark calls it the good news, the euangelion, the breaking news of historic proportions. And Mark is proclaiming and demonstrating, see, see, look, Jesus is the Messiah. And so far, what we've seen through the book of Mark and what we've talked about in the book of Mark is that Jesus sort of presents himself as the king, as the Messiah, who's the only king who can deliver on the promise of healing the world, of fixing the brokenness that is present. And the way that he became king wasn't by birth and it wasn't by power and it wasn't by force. It wasn't by votes. Instead, what Jesus did was he surrendered his whole life. See, he's the only king that comes to power by dying because even when he dies, he lives. Even when he loses, he wins. And so Mark declares him as the Messiah. And, and then Mark goes on to show us that Jesus is the one who can overthrow the rulers of death and sin and brokenness and establish the new rule of his kingdom of life and healing. And it begins the moment that we put our trust in Jesus. And we looked at how Mark sort of presents Jesus as the Messiah who has the uncontrollable, storm-calming power that works in us even when it seems like God's sleeping. That God is at work for those who love him even when it seems like, what are you doing, God? It seems like the storm is taking control and Jesus is like, no, 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 I am in control of even this. And then Mark also demonstrates to us that, that Jesus is the one who gives thanks for even pain and suffering because Jesus turns all of that into a miracle. That when we bring what we have with thanksgiving to the throne of God, he turns even the most discomfort, even the most painful, even the most not enough circumstances into enough into a miracle. Now, as Jesus has been going through the different towns and proclaiming and demonstrating and teaching and healing and all of the different things, there's this thing that Mark keeps bringing up again and again that the crowds keep asking the same question. 
And if you've read through the Bible with us in our interactive reading plan, you know what it is. The the thing that keeps coming up over and over again is the question, who is this man? I mean, he heals somebody and the crowds go, who is this man? He calms the storm and the disciples go, who is this man, right? He heals people. He forgives sins. He has this wise teaching. And every time Jesus does one more thing, the people are like, who is this man? Who is this guy? What is he all about? Who is this man? And Mark sets this up on purpose because he wants you to see, he wants his readers to see the way that the different people have responded to this question, who is this man? Now, some of the people in the crowd respond by like walking away. They, they, they sort of reject him and are like, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with this. There's some people in the crowd we're told are surprised by what Jesus did. There's some who are saddened. There are some who are confused by what Jesus does and what he talks about and what he teaches. But what we see with all of the people who respond that way, there is little in their life that actually changes. They, they sort of witness and bear witness to this amazing thing. They ask the question, who is this? And then they walk away and, and go on with the rest of their lives. Honestly, those people do a lot of the same things that we do when we encounter stories about Jesus, when we encounter these narratives about Jesus, we treat it sort of the same way that we do like holiday Hallmark movies. Like we uh, get in there and we watch them. And, and me personally, like I really like watching holiday Hallmark movies. They're sweet and they're simple. And I know what's going to happen within the 15 minutes of the movie starting. Like I already know all the things that are going to happen. And we sort of approach Jesus's stories the same way. Oh, that's sweet. Oh, it's simple. And we know what's going to happen 15 minutes into the story. We know he's going to die and come back to life. And we love them. Because they provide sort of this escape and this emotional release without really requiring much from us. Like I can watch a holiday Hallmark movie and not have to think about, oh, the world is coming to an end. I don't have to think about changing my spending habits. I don't have to think about changing really anything in my life. I just sit there and I enjoy it and then I go on with whatever it was I was doing before. And so often this is how we, we interact with the stories of Jesus, We don't allow them to require much from us. But as Mark rushes to the end of his gospel, he does so in a way that that requires for us to make a decision about Jesus. See, in chapter 15 of the gospel of Mark, like Mark packs all of this stuff in one chapter. You've got Jesus arrested, he goes to trial, he's condemned, he's beaten, he's abandoned, he's hung on the cross, he dies and is buried, all in one chapter. But there's this one verse that stands out. It's in verse 39, where this character, who's this totally unlikely character, all of a sudden responds to that question of, who is this man? See, Jesus takes his last breath on the cross, he dies, and darkness falls over the earth. And then what we're told is that there's this centurion that's standing. And it says, when the centurion, this Roman soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And this is this crazy thing in the middle of this epic, rushing, action-packed chapter. This, this one verse 
where all of the followers have left Jesus, they're nowhere to be found. And this Roman soldier, the enemy of Jesus, who's standing at the foot of the cross, likely because he was a part of putting Jesus on the cross, is standing there and looks up at this whole situation. And he declares, surely this guy was the son of God. There's no other explanation for this. Surely this guy is the son of God. And this Roman centurion is the first person the first person after Jesus' death that declares the truth about who he is. This guy's the Messiah. This guy really was the Son of God. Now, it would be one thing if, like, Mark's gospel ends there, but that's not the end. Mark has just a little bit more to go. We see that Jesus is buried, and then on the third day after the Sabbath ends, these women go to the tomb. They visit the tomb and they bring these spices and all of these different things. And when they get to the tomb, they see that the tomb is empty. And and what they see shocks and amazes them. They see this man in white robes who we know is an angel, but they don't know that, who speaks to them. And the angel says, do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Tell them that he's risen. Tell them that he's back from the dead. And what we see is the woman's very unlikely response. We're told right after that, that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. The end. That's the end of Mark's gospel. Like, that's it. He stops right there, and and the end, this, this weird and this abrupt ending that doesn't really seem like an ending. We have an enemy that has declared Jesus as Christ, and we have the followers who have run away and high and run away and hidden uh, and don't say anything to anybody or even declare him the Son of God because they're scared and terrified. The end. Now, when I think about this abrupt ending, ending, it immediately takes me back to my 10th grade year of high school. I um, was assigned a short story, and I got really into this short story. But like a good procrastinator, I didn't start on it until the night before it was due. And I got super into the short story. I was really excited about writing it. It was about someone who was taking a journey down a road, and all of a sudden, they encounter this strange mythical creature and they start trying to figure out who this mythical mythical creature was. And I loved it. It was so exciting. And I was typing away. And then I looked at the clock and it was 1130. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I, there's no way I'm going to finish this story. Like, there's no way that that's going to happen. I'm not staying up past midnight in order to finish this assignment. English isn't that important to me. So what I did was I quickly shut the whole storyline down, and I said, and then I woke up and realized it was a dream. The end. And I remember turning it into my teacher, and my teacher would, like gave me this, this feedback on this thing. She was like, great setup, good start. I don't think this is supposed to be the ending. 
Like, I don't think this is what was supposed to happen. And, and I confessed and I told her, well, yeah, it got really late and I didn't have time to finish it. So I figured that could like wrap it all up in a bow and there you go. And she's like, there's no bow here. Like you, you didn't finish the assignment. And I don't remember what grade on it, it didn't really matter. But I feel like this was just like Mark's story. Like, I, I imagine that people who read this ending to Mark's story was like, wait, did you lose the last chapter? Like, did you run out of time? Like, what happened? And in fact, in future generations, that's actually what the scribes thought. They thought that the last chapter must have been missing or Mark must have made a a mistake. And so what they tried to do was they tried to add a couple more verses. They tried to add a couple more stories about Jesus meeting with the people and appearing and and then the ascension into heaven. But if you notice in your Bibles, there's a footnote on all of those. It says, hey, listen, the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts don't have this. This isn't a part of the original story. This was added later. And so what we have to accept is that Mark was an excellent storyteller and just like all of the other things, did this on purpose. That Mark's abrupt ending actually is so that us as the readers get to the end and say, oh, wait, like, is that it? Like they ran away from the tomb? That, that's what happened? That, that's the end of the story after all of the teaching and all of the miracles and the gruesome death and, and this proclamation about resurrection? Like that's it? They were terrified and they, they ran away and didn't say anything to, to anybody? That's, that's the end of the story? And it's like Mark is sort of turning back to the reader and, and in that response saying, well, what do you think should happen? What do you think the end of the story should be? This whole thing is trying to set us up and saying that that the Messiah, that Jesus claims to be the Messiah and he died. Well, Well, could he be? Could that be what it is? But do you think that there might be more? Do you think the claims are true? How how would you respond? If you were the women and you were told the Messiah is alive, it sort of marks, sort of primes this whole thing for you and I to answer this question Is the crucified Jesus the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And if he is, what should happen? How should you and I respond? Should we run away like the women ran away, keeping silence? Or should we respond like the centurion does, recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God, recognizing Jesus as King? Now, oftentimes what we do when we, when we ask ourselves those questions, we read about these women who run away. I think that what we have a tendency to do is to judge the women, to say like, gosh, they just didn't get it. They were still afraid. They'd hung out with Jesus for all of those times. They'd seen him do miracle after miracle. They even heard him talk about coming back to life after the third day of being dead. Why would they run away? They had all of this evidence And I think oftentimes what I hear in conversation with people who are like wavering back and forth about whether to believe in the claims of Jesus or reject the claims of Jesus is they oftentimes say, gosh, if I just, if, if God could just come down in the flesh, 
If I could have like a divine encounter with, 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 a, with a divine being, it could be God, it could be Jesus, it could be an angel. If I could have any of that, if I could witness a true miracle, if I could really touch Jesus and see him and feel him, if I could walk with him, then I'd believe. Then, then I'd have enough evidence. Then I'd be convinced. Then I wouldn't waffle anymore between doubts and, and truth. I would just, I would know. I would know. I, that would be the story that I would tell again and again and again. Like, hey, I was just living my life, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, God came in the flesh. He showed up in this amazing way. He, he laid down his life to be king. And I realized this is the king. It changed my life forever. I left everything that I was doing before. And like, here I go to proclaim him as king. We think that if we had the same experience that they did, that we would choose a different story. But what we have to understand from this story that we're given is that it was just as difficult for them to accept this miracle It was just as difficult for them to accept the fact that Jesus was Messiah, even after seeing and experiencing all those things, as it is for you and I. And it brings us back to this thought that we think like, well, back then they believed in miracles. They believed in all of those things. But the truth is, it was just as hard for them. I mean, Jesus had talked about again and again how he was going to come back on the third day, and yet we don't have any evidence that the disciples were sitting at the tomb waiting for him to come back. They had given up. They had thrown in the towel. They thought all was lost. They, they were no different than us in our own doubts. And so what Mark is trying to present to us is sort of this like, hey, listen, whether you lived through it or you're in this generation, we all have to sort of take the evidence that we've been presented. Whether eyewitness accounts or through Mark's gospel, we all have to take the evidence and we have to sort of make a decision. Am I going to trust that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do? Or am I not? There's another really difficult part of accepting these claims that Jesus is Messiah. And oftentimes we discount them and we don't really pay attention to it. But another really hard part that faced the women and and also that the women faced and also we face is this reality of accepting the life-changing reality of encountering an almighty divine in such a tangible and real way, has consequences. Like, for all of us, there may be ways in our life that we welcome the consequences and the change that might come from encountering God. We say, yes, I need this storm to be over. Yes, I want Jesus to come and heal this part of my life. We say, yes, I want to encounter the divine so I might have peace in this situation. There's all sorts of ways that we want to encounter the divine and have him change us and accept that into our our lives. But what we don't realize until like it actually comes is that we don't get to place limits on the things that he changes in our lives. Like when, when we encounter God in these real and tangible ways, what happens is all of the things that we had planned for ourselves 
all of the routines that we had set up in our own life, all of the rhythms and rituals, all of our best laid plans like sort of start to end in the sight of this new revelation. That when we accept that Jesus is Savior, when, when we accept this revelation that has come into our life, what, al- what also happens is that we have to surrender all of our crowns. We have to surrender all of the ways that we rule our own kingdom, and we have to let go of the ways that we've said, this is right and this is wrong. And now we have to uphold the ways he said something is right or wrong. We have to uphold his crown. We have to uphold his kingdom. See, accepting that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God to make him king, all comes at a cost. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 8 to his disciples. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, even after you and I and the women and the disciples had received all of the teaching and all of the evidence and had heard all of the things and witnessed all of the miracles, they still faced this really difficult decision of accepting Jesus as king. And that's really hard to receive because it requires for us to give up so much. This is why Jesus compares finding the kingdom of God to a treasure that's hidden in a field, that you stumble upon it. And while the treasure is free to buy the field that surrounds it, we have to give up everything that we have, sell all of our possessions in order to acquire the possession, in order to get the treasure. It's free, but you have to give up all you have. Now, when we put in that perspective, no wonder the women are running away. No wonder they're like, I don't really want to be a part of this. No wonder you and I oftentimes run away as well. And yet Mark brings us to the end of the story, and he kind of puts us in this place where we say, wait, 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 that can't be the end. That can't be the end, because if that was the end, all of the stories would have died with Jesus. All of these stories would have died with the disciples, This message of the gospel, this breaking news of historic proportion wouldn't have been shared around the globe. We wouldn't be gathered here today. And so all of us come to the end of the story and say, wait, that can't be it. That can't be it. There has to be more. That's actually only the beginning of the story. And what we find is that when we accept the truth of this story, when we accept Jesus as the Messiah, we find ourselves a part of one of the deepest stories that is filled with so much mystery and so much truth and so much humanity that it's the story that we tell over and over and over again. And so what we are left with today as we finish the Gospel of Mark is we find ourselves in the position of having to answer the question, Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Is he the son of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he the king that's worth laying down everything in order to accept? Or is this a message that you run from, terrified and never saying anything to anyone? 
Now, I can't answer that question for you. That's the question that you all get to answer. Who do you say that this man is? Now, there's an invitation for every one of us to accept him, to make him king, to allow him to transform our lives, to to agree that who he said he was, he actually was, and, and what he said he did, he actually did. That because of Jesus, we have an opportunity to have a relationship with God restored and reconciled. Because of Jesus, we have an opportunity to live again forever, both in this life and in the next. And so today, in this abrupt ending, I want to offer you that same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us and it asks us these questions. We thank you for the way that it has preserved who you are and the stories about you. But ultimately, we come to this place where we have to let go of the words and cling to you. And so, Father God, we ask that you would move in our hearts, that you would meet us in those spaces of unbelief, that you would meet us in those places of feeling like we want to run away. And instead, you would encourage us and be with us as we move towards you, to allow us to make this decision that that you are king. And Father, we know that that means a lot, and we We believe that without even knowing the extent of what that means. And so, Father God, we ask that you would move in us. We ask that you would reveal to us the ways that you are calling us into deeper relationships with you. We pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.